We'll turn then formally and let's look in Hebrews chapter 1. And we are going to find this great king who's come. And he came from heaven to proclaim peace and give the message of the gospel. And of course, that's the great good news and what we celebrate every Christmas. And the more you think about it and the more you live on this life or as you look back through history, you see that peace is hard to come by. Peace from any king or ruler or sustained peace in this world is hard to get a grasp on. Even in the most optimistic and best of days, they can turn very quickly. An example from history would be this one. The, the optimistic prime minister assured the world that there was still hope. There was still a way out of this what seems to be an impending another world war. See, the German chancellor was eyeing now Czechoslovakia for a full-on takeover. He was stirring up the citizens even against the government to side with him to invite his own invasion. And that was going to certainly lead to war, probably a war all over Europe. But the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, thought he could navigate a peace that would, yeah, they'd make some concessions to the Nazis, but would in the end evade further conflict and war, a war that he was sure nobody wanted after they had lived through the First World War. So this wasn't going to be an important meeting. If he was going to have any hope of intercession, Neville Chamberlain understood he couldn't leave this kind of negotiation to any diplomat. He had to go and give his own personal presence. He was himself going to go into Germany and go make peace for the world. And the great prime minister, he had actually won a conference with the Fuhrer. And he was sure his personal presence would have influence to endear peace in their lands. And maybe it did, it seems. Chamberlain, now infamously, returned home on September 30th, 1938, And he did so with the words on his mouth, I have returned from Germany with a peace for our time. Apparently, his time was very short. The peace agreement didn't last the spring. Hitler obtained control of all of Czechoslovakia. And then by less than a year later, by that September, he invaded Poland. And that was the beginning of World War II. And so those words from Chamberlain now, of course, looking back in history, seem so naive and in that way ironic peace for our time. Yeah, not hardly. But there is a peace, of course, that we're going to see this morning that has been made by a far greater ruler against a far greater foe. It's a peace affirmed and proclaimed even by angels in heaven when this king was to be born. Of course, those words we look at every Christmas, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Yes, this is the peace that Jesus Christ God and King of heaven has come down from heaven to proclaim on earth to speak of true and lasting peace. So the word this Christmas, and as we look this morning from Hebrews 1, is this, Jesus came from heaven to speak to you. He came down from heaven, put on humanity, because he had a message. He had a word for you, and his word is about God. He's going to tell you about God. He's going to teach you about God. The word's in The gospel of John is is that the Son of God came to exegete God. That is, reveal and tell of the excellencies of God to show His glory. And so the word is for us, Jesus came from heaven to speak to you about God. No voice matters but His, so listen. Intently be attuned to the word of the Son. God is speaking by His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. And we'll find that He is speaking and making a peace not for just his time or for our time, but for all time into eternity. There's no greater message we need to listen to than this, nor messenger. 
And that's where we start in this word from the book of Hebrews. We hear this command that we need to listen to the Son. And we find that in verses 1 and 2 here of the book of Hebrews as it opens. Really, this book opens and it makes the grandest of claims. That there is no greater way, there's no surer word about God. There's no way to know God beyond this than you know God through Jesus Christ. To boil it down, do you want to know God? You need to look and listen to Jesus, and you need to look nowhere else. And so that's significant. That has the greatest of significance for any and every person on this planet. This proves to be the crucial issue for all humanity. For those, that's all of us, we're created by this God. We were actually made to have fellowship with Him. We were made to enjoy His presence. We were made to give thanks and to honor Him. That's why you were created. And yet all of us, we've turned from Him. We've spurned from Him. We've alienated ourselves from Him because of our sin before His holiness. And so now God comes, and He comes to reckon. He comes to make right. And He comes with actually, in light of all of that even, still a hopeful word. And so this word from God deserves your full and undivided attention, no matter who you think you are. And that was no less true than for the people who first heard this message for God's chosen people of Israel. See, this book was written to Jewish believers. They were ethnically Jews. They were also religiously Jews at one time, but now they'd profess faith in Jesus and they were gathering as churches. And yet they were being tempted. These Jewish Christians were being tempted just to revert back to Judaism. See, their ethnic brothers were making it really hard on them to follow Jesus. They were shunning them out of their communities. They were even persecuting them, stealing their things. We see that in even Hebrews chapter 10. And so it's very tempting. If they would just drop the name of Jesus and go back to their old Judaism, life gets comfortable again. Life gets peaceful again. Why not just go back? And besides, God's people still had God's word, didn't they? See, that was the thing. That's why... Israel might have doubted why the word from the Son of God was so significant. They already had God's word. That's what distinguished Israel from all the other nations of the world. They had the very word of God. They had a relationship with God. God had repeatedly sent prophets and priests to tell them more and more about God from his word. And that's captured just in the opening verse here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets that's the kind of thing you find recorded in that first, you know, three quarters of that Bible in your laps. It's what we call the Old Testament. God spoke in many ways and in many times to many people, and it's recorded there from Moses to David to Isaiah to Daniel. But that was some time ago, even from the vantage point of the first hearers here in Hebrews. This was written in the first century, maybe in the 60s. It had been some 400 years since God had spoken by Malachi at the close of the Old Testament. God hadn't said anything for a long, long time. But see, there's nothing wrong with God's Word that was spoken by the prophets in the Old Testament long ago. I mean, it is true. It is fully true. It's the very inspired and errant Word of God. There's nothing wrong with it. It's very good. It's good to hold to and and abide by and believe in the Old Testament. We do. We preach it. We teach it. We go through it. It, it. It has so much life and wisdom to give us about who God is. And again, the Jews were tempted to let go of Jesus of Nazareth and just hold back onto that sure word of God in the Old Testament. But here's the catch. Yeah, everything about the Old Testament is great and stupendous, but here's the catch. What if God had something more to say? And he did, verse 2. But 
in these last days, he has spoken. God has spoken to us by his son. So here's this clear contrast between the old days and now. The last days, God has spoken by prophets and priests in many different ways. But now, in the final days, he has spoken by a far greater word and revelation. Really, in this sense, thinking through history, it is the final word. God has spoken by a son, his own son, the divine son of God, Jesus Christ. See, with the coming of Jesus, with his birth, everything in history changed. It is so fitting, at least in our Western world, that we date our year based on that, that we are in A.D. 2021, that Jesus came some 2,020 plus years ago. For at that moment, everything hinged and changed in history. Really, that moment when he was born and his life and ministry and death and resurrection, that culminated as the very climax of all of history. That was the moment. From that point, you've then entered the last days. You are in the downhill resolution of history. The climax was Christ coming. After that, we are just working toward the glorious resolution. And that's what he means by we are in the last days. Because you see, God thinks really highly of his son. He appointed him, it goes on, even to be heir of all things, the inheritor. He has rights to all the world and all creation. Or Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. He says that about Jesus, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. The Son of God stands as the very purpose of all creation. Every atom, every soul, every person, everything in all of existence exists to lift up Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. That's why your atoms are being sustained and held together. It's to make much of Jesus Christ. And again, no spokesman before Jesus, no spokesman for God before Jesus, namely all of those prophets, were so closely related to God and so closely exalted like this son. This son whom even God made the world. He is the co-creator. He is God himself. He is divine. He is the heir of all things. And it says the end of verse 2, through whom... Also, he created the world. Again, no prophet can say that. Because no prophet is God like the Son is. The Son came to speak in these last days to give the definitive testimony about who God is because he is God. He knows him intimately. He knows what God is like. He embodies it. You want to know God, you look to Jesus. You don't need other testifiers or references. Right? It's like when someone applies for a job, and then you have to put references at the bottom of your resume so the employer can, the potential employer can go contact those people to learn something about the applicant, about who he is. And some of your references that you might put on your own resume, they're, they're people you know very well. They're, maybe they're best friends, it's a spouse, or, or somebody that you worked with for a number of years. You also might put some references that uh, maybe you don't know them so well, but they have you know, letters in front of their name and stuff. Uh, They know you, they'll vouch for you, but they might not know you too personally. And that's fair, that's fine. But then when the employer goes to call those references and make contact and get some more information, well, when it gets to Dr. So-and-so, you know, the the glowing name on your resume, well, tell me more about Rick. Well, he's, he's great. What about him? Well, I'll go ask a friend. I don't really know. You know, I, I don't have a close relationship with him. The witness then, as he's probed, he has nothing else to add. 
Well, not so with the son when he's talking about God. He knows God very well. He is himself divine. He is the son of the father. And so to know God, to hear from God, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ. In him, in the very words that the son came to speak, you have the heart of God laid open. You want to know what God's heart is like? You just need to go look and listen to Jesus. He came to tell you about the greatness of your God, and so listen. This is the miracle of Christmas. God became flesh because he had to get to earth to tell you something, to show you something. And so will you listen? And in case you're still skeptical, in case you think you have better things to pay attention to, the remainder of Hebrews chapter 1 serves as something like the son's resume about why you need to give full attention to him, why his word about God surpasses all others, completes all others, show how they were deficient and his is ultimate about why this word from the Son proves the only way to know God. And so what follows, what we have here, we uncover four reasons as we walk through the rest of Hebrews 1, four reasons why we must listen to the Son who's come from heaven. Four reasons we must listen to the Son who's come from heaven. And the first one is this, is that He speaks as the sustaining Redeemer. Verses 3 and 4. We should listen to the Son because He speaks to us about God, but He does so as a sustaining redeemer. He comes to speak to us, not just as a a voice from upstairs, but he comes down to earth to actually save. That's this kind of spokesman we have. So it begins with this incredible statement as we unpack verses 3 and 4. This incredible statement in verse 3. It says about the Son that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, this is incredible. One commentator put it, each word here is pulsating with deity as it describes the Son. The Son is God in such that He is the very radiance of the glory of God. I think of like a a winter lamppost and the light on top shining through a dark, wintry night. But how does this work with Jesus? For most of the time when He's here on earth, especially in flesh, he, uh, He didn't look too special. And actually from the prophecies we know He wasn't supposed to look too special. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him or desire Him. And we've traced that as we've gone through the gospel. People didn't recognize who Jesus was as the Messiah right off. The demons did, right? They had spiritual eyes to see. But normal people look right by him. He just looks like a normal Galilean Israelite. Now, there was that time he was on the Mount Transfiguration. Remember that? Matthew's gospel. He peeled back his humanity and showed his glory, but only to those three disciples. But most of the time, he just looked like a normal Joe Israelite. So how could he then so perfectly radiate the glory of God and be such an exact representation of his nature. Well, he does things that only God can do. And two of them he lists here. As we continue on in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews enumerates in two ways that the Son shows us what God is like, namely because he does things that only God can do. And he does namely two of them. And the first thing that he does is that he's the creator Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what does he do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the sustaining creator. I mean, this is astounding. This is incredible. And this is a word, of course, worth listening to. The God who created, who brought out of nothing everything there is, and he did it by a word. He spoke and things happened. The world happened. The heavens happened. 
Angels happened. It all happened with his word. But more than this, as we see here, that creator, he not only speaks and brings everything into existence, but he upholds and binds and holds all of those molecules together by that same sustaining word. Do you see? He not only creates you, you, by a word, he holds you together by that word, such that if he chose not to, you would blow apart. You are in his hands as your sustaining creator. Listen to him. But that's not the only divine power he has or does. As he goes on in verse 3. Again, this is, if it can be, even more remarkable. So now like the middle of verse 3. After making a purifications for sins, he, the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So first, he does a very godlike thing. He sits down on a throne in heaven. That's where only God reigns. He sits at the Father's right hand. That's a seat of honor is only taken by someone who's quite powerful, and it's only taken by him after he does something quite powerful, quite godlike in a power and effect. Look at this. Why does he get this chair? Why does he take this seat? It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. This is the work of the Almighty that he would purify sins, that he would cleanse sins, that he would erase sins and forgive sins and eradicate the sins of his people. Remember when Jesus spoke forgiveness to the crippled man in the Gospels? The Jews rightly objected. They said, no, 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 no. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus says, well, to prove that, I'm going to make him walk too. That the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And indeed, that's what he came from heaven to do to purify, to cleanse, to erase all of the sins of his people such that now the job is so done, he can sit down. Look at that. He gets to sit down. It's fully accomplished. Look with me over, flip over just a couple pages. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews, by the way, we don't know exactly who wrote it. The early church thought Paul, it's possible. But it's clearly inspired. It's a glorious book. Here in Hebrews 10, he explains to us the significance that Jesus sits down. And it, there's so much here, but we've got to pick it up in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So there it is again. He sat down at the right hand of God. And what precipitated that? Well, he first offered a single sacrifice for sins for all time. This is the glory of what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what the incarnation was all about in accomplishing and showing us the greatness of God. God came, became man. He took on human flesh so that he would die and be that sacrifice himself. That's the single sacrifice. That he would die on the cross, and then he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, and then now he gets to sit at the Father's right hand. But here's the significance of it. What is so significant about his single sacrifice that was for all time? Such that he gets to sit down. Why does he get to sit down? Well, the answer there is in verse 14. Why does he get to sit down? Why is he seated at the Father's right hand? Hebrews ten fourteen. He has perfected, made perfect for all time. Those who are being sanctified. And the idea of that all time, it's perpetual, eternal, abiding forever. 
What's the point? If by his one sacrifice, he's forever perfected all of God's people, what more work does he have to do? He's got none. Why? Because his people are already perfect. He died for them. He dealt with their sins. So he gets to go up in heaven and take a seat and put up his feet. Because he's got no more left to do to deal with Rick Zaman's sins. They've been obliterated. They've been washed away. He's been forever made perfect because of what I've done for him. And that's true for any that looks to Christ. Why does he sit down? There's nothing more for him to do. He's just waiting till it all comes to a resolution. And he'll come down and take his throne on earth to go into heaven. That's why he cried out on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. It's done. He can come in heaven and sit down. Sin has been forever taken away by this sustaining redeemer. Should we not listen to this son? Should we not listen to the word he has for us? Namely, that you can know God, that you can have perfect, eternal, abiding peace with God, that your sins can be dealt with, not just today, not just in your lifetime, but they can be dealt with through an eternity. Will you listen? Will you trust his word? That's first. That's why you should listen up. Second, why should we listen to this son? Because he speaks as the worshiped son of God. That's why as really the prize of heaven. And we'll unpack this in verses 5 and 6 to go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. Uh, but first, we've got to comment about verse 4, and it really sets the stage for the whole rest of Hebrews chapter 1. So let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 reads, it's explaining further why he sits down at the Father's right hand, why he has the title Son, and so forth. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So why should the Son sit enthroned in heaven? Well, because he's so much better than the angels. Oh, well, that's nice. Why is that of any concern? I don't know about you, but I never really struggled with that, about why God's Son would ever be equated or seen as less than angels. What is the deal here? Is it because of the people he's writing to? Were they struggling with worshiping angels instead of worshiping Jesus? Well, not exactly. But, but the author of Hebrews, he's certainly, he's building an argument. And here's what you need to understand. He's really making this claim or demonstrating that the Son is far greater than any angels. But why? Well, that means he's also greater than any message the angels gave. What message did the angels give? See, the Jews of this day in the first century, they understood that angels from heaven were those that passed on or gave out to Moses the law and the old covenant, we call it. The angels in that way were the mediators between God and men in the Old Testament. And even the New Testament speaks of this. Like in Galatians 3.19, even Paul writes, he talks about the Old Testament law as having been ordained through angels. Or Martyr Stephen, in his speech, he says the Jews, quote, received the law as ordained by angels. That's Acts 7.52 and 53. So what's the point? Those Jewish Christians here at this time, they they were being tempted to turn away from Christ because, again, of the persecution they were getting from their Jewish brethren. They were tempted to back away from Jesus and to just go back to the Old Testament law, which was given by heavenly messengers, after all. I mean, it's a message that came from heaven. It came from angels. Isn't the Old Testament good? Of course it is. But again, what we're getting at, but there's something that's come that's far better far better than the angels and their messengers and any message they would give. 
any, even Old Testament law. And so the rest of this chapter, he's banging that bell. Listen, yeah, the Old Testament was great, but a New Testament has come, and it's come through a better messenger, a better testimony. It's come by God, the Son, coming down. So hold fast to his word. Over any true it be, incomplete word that came by angels, listen to the Son. He is God, very God. And so then to prove that point as we begin this chapter further, we look at verse 5. And that's where he starts to get this debate and dialogue about the angels over the Son of God. And so he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the answer is, he never said that to any angel or anything close. These are two Old Testament quotes, though. They bring good truths in the Old Testament. The first one, You are my son, today I have begotten you. is taken from Psalm 2, verse 7. The next one, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's taken from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Again, we've talked about that passage some recently. That's where God had promised to King David that one of his own very sons would be, it says here, God's son. But see, this is the ultimate trump card. The son plays why you need to listen to him and why you should hear his message. He is God. That's it. He is God's son. He's divine. Why would you turn away from him? He is God, very God. Besides, and that's where he goes on in verse 6, those angels that you're so infatuated with in their message, God commanded them to worship the son. Look at this. Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's a quote taken from Psalm 97, verse 7. Again, the son's superiority over the angels is just so very clear. Even the angels, and they dutifully submit and worship the son as God commanded them. And so then to turn it back to these struggling Jews, so why won't you? Why won't you worship and listen to the son? Why are you going back to some old, outdated message? When the new, the ultimate word is come, the son has spoken. Listen to him. What better word can you have? And I think we could see here easily, looking down our nose at them many centuries ago, yeah, why would they ever go back? I mean, they're being persecuted. It hurts to follow Jesus. It was costing them something to follow Christ. And when that kind of thing's happening in your life, are you ever tempted to go back to old counselors? Are you ever tempted to go back to old ways of thinking? Old comforters? I mean, in that way, we're really like addicts, aren't we, for comfort and counsel we want to hear? Sometimes it's really to actual substances, you know, to take away, to numb the pain kind of thing. But other times, we're just hunting for old comforters, old counsel, whether we're talking escapism and entertainment, or maybe there's an old relationship that we revert back to. Maybe they won't push us to Jesus, but I sure feel more comfortable and affirmed there. But only what's going on when we do that? When we turn up the volume on these old counselors, we're tuning out the word supreme, the son who came to give the comfort of his word. We're tuning him out as we tune in to these other voices in our minds and our hearts. So what are those counselors that you are tempted to revert to that are speaking into your heart? I'm not sure, but understand this, whoever it is, whatever it is, no voice can speak more authoritatively and more needfully than the voice of the Son who came. Listen to Him. His is the voice 
the message of God, even as God himself. Listen to him, bow to the Son, worship him, hear his message. Third, listen to the Son because, third, he speaks as the unchanging creator. We see this in verses 7 to 12, and especially in our day, where we're in a, what's a deluge of over-information, over-stimulation, a deluge of false information. The next truth about the Son should make our confidence here in His Word swell and grow. I mean, there's nothing more that can bring encouragement here than the stability of this unchanging Creator in His Word. Again, Hebrews underscores the great significance and difference then between the angels and the Son. Because these angels gave the old covenant, but something's come that's far better. And so first, the author highlights about the angels is that they are created. That by their very nature, they are creaturely. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews 1 now. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. So first off, notice about the angels, they are creatures. They are made. He makes his angels. Now, to be sure, they're incredible creatures. They are powerful spiritual beings. You wouldn't want to mess with an angel. And when angels mess with people on earth, even in the glorious word of what we celebrate at Christmas, when the the angels are singing from heaven, do you remember how the shepherds responded? They were freaked out. They were afraid, such that the angel had to say, don't be afraid. I have good news. Angels are amazing. But whatever power and glory they possess, it's derived. It doesn't resonate within them. They are dependent creatures, just like we are in one sense. They are not creators. They're created. They are dependent and entirely dependent on their creator. Furthermore, look how he describes the angels as some of the most constantly changing and moving and shifting aspects of our creation. He describes them to be like fire and wind. I mean, you can't get more transitory or more moving than this. I mean, the only way you really know wind is when it moves something, right? When it blows those leaves down the street, you're like, ah, the wind did this. You can only feel it when it changes, it's the nature of wind. Or consider the flame of fire. We'll all be lighting candles around Christmas time. Watch the fire dance on the top of that candle wick. Or watch your fireplace this winter. And just see the fire dance in the fireplace. It's constantly flickering, flashing, moving, always about. That describes these angelic messengers. They are creatures, yes. Powerful ones, yes. But they are dependent. They are creatures. And they are always about and moving and changing and shifting. But not the sun. He is constant. He is God. He's eternal. And so next, the author of Hebrews, he returns to the Old Testament. He returns to Psalm 45 and Psalm 102, again, to show the great constancy and superiority of the Son. Look at this. First, he quotes Psalm 45, and we find it in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9. It goes like this. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. That's what he says to the sun. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so we discover just so clearly that son, he is God. 
He reigns forever. And because he is God, he can reign eternally, be unending, unstopping. Doesn't have to take breaks. Verse 9 reinforces it, his divine nature, but also his humanity. It says, God, your God has anointed you. So he is God. He is also the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the man to come from David's line. But of course, he's not merely a man, is he? Such that he is God. And in this way, it goes on to say, he is so much greater than all potential heavenly rivals or companions. He's far greater than any angel, and he's far greater than any word they would bring. And as if to just pile on, he keeps going. He goes to Psalm 102. And as we keep reading, what what angel or counselor or creature can compare to this son? Look at verse 10. So, and, that is, and to the son, he also says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, O son. They will perish, but you remain, and they all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So what greatness of the Son do we uncover here? But again, that He is not created, but Creator. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And more than this, He is constant. He is eternal. He's never dying again, and He's never changing. See, all those created things, including each one of us, will be in one sense uncreated one day. Our existence, our life as we know it, will end. And when all of those things perish, when all of us are dead, Jesus remains unfazed, unmoved, ever sure, and as always sure as he has been. The psalmist, and what Hebrews picks up on here, compares us and all creation, even those angels, to like passing fads of the day. They're like clothes that get rolled up and then recycled into the attic. You know, we know this, the passing fads of fashion, bell bottoms, they're in. They're out, and they're way out when they're out, right? Beards are in, and then beards are out. It's all changing constantly, like we are. But not him. He remains sure, steadfast, constant, the same. And he will never end. He will never be unsure. And if that's the case of his character and his being, what does that then make of his word that he speaks? It is sure. It'll never fail. Is your word like this? By comparison, I live this as a parent. Have you ever made the mistake of making a promise to your kids? I make promises to my kids, you know, all the time. We're going to do this. We have plans to do this. About what they, I'll make promises about what they can do and the dates and so forth. And here's how it's going to go. And I think I make those promises in good faith. You know, I have all intents and purposes to actually execute on this word I tell them and I promise them. But what's the problem? I am very small. I'm very finite. My powers and insight are very limited. And as a creature living in this creaturely world, things are changing all the time. There's all kinds of things in myself and outside of me that I just cannot control. When I say you can go to so-and-so's house, But then someone gets exposed to COVID. You can't go anymore. That's the way it goes, right? Oops, you can't go. Or yeah, we'll take that family vacation. Oh, but then this happens, so I have to work. Or 
I'll have, I've been let go, or I got sick and the park is closed. Whatever it is, there's so many circumstances within our own bodies and in our, in our own lives, let alone in the many lives of others. There's so many things that can undo our very finite words. A word from any creature is shaky as we live, as we must, in a constantly changing world. That's a reality all of us as creatures live in, even angels, but not God, not God the Son. His word is sure. Why? Because He is. He never has to back out of a promise. He never has to reschedule. He'll never have to change His mind. His word is sure. It'll never spoil. It'll never expire. Because also, get this, as God, he speaks, and there's two aspects to this, he knows the future, and more than this, he can control the future. There's nothing that can stop his word and his will, because he is God. And so when the Son speaks, you can trust his word, for it will not fail. Whatever other counselor or word or way of thinking you may be tempted to listen to, know this, their counsel will change. Their opinions will shift. Their words will twist but not the word of God spoken by his son. You can bank your soul on that. Finally, we listen to the son because he speaks as the ruling king. Verses 13 and 14. We listen to the son because he speaks with the full authority of heaven. And again, this is a kind of authority that the angels lack. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you've been with us in Matthew and then last week in Psalm 110, this should sound familiar. This is straight out of Psalm 110. This was the verse that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees to stump them about, well, who do you make the Messiah to be? Is he David's son or is he something greater? And the Pharisees could make no heads or tails of it. But of course, the answer is the incarnation. And in that way, As God took on flesh, he is both God the Son and he is both the Son of David, fulfilling the promises of God. God the Son came down, taking on the flesh of David's line to then reign over all the enemies of God's people to be God's forever king. But that is no seat or throne for an angel. No mere angel can rule over the creation of God. And why not? As he goes on into verse 14 here, angels were made by God to serve, not to be served. He quotes verse 14 now. Are they, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Yeah, they are. They're made to serve. Now, to be sure, those ministering spirits at times, they've been sent with God's message, and you should listen up and give attention to it. But when the king himself shows up to speak for himself, you drop everything else and you listen. You tune out all the other voices and you tune into the king who's come. And indeed, this is the great warning to the church. Are we still listening? Are we riveting our hearts and our minds to the message of the Son? Because if you're not riveted and bound and continually listening and attuned, then you are necessarily drifting. When you tune out, you start to fall back. You don't tread water, you start to sink. Look, because that's where he turns in chapter 2, verse 1. After setting this up about how great the Son is in his message, he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. 
soon as you stop listening, you are backing out, you are drifting away like an undocked boat. And so we must bind, rivet, tie our minds and our hearts to this Son and His Word. Well, finally, to turn to it, what is the message that the Son came to give? Why don't we just look down further? There's so much here. Let's look down at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Because it's not that simple. He didn't simply come to speak. He came to actually do. He came to work and to work salvation. Hebrews continues this way, verse 17. Speaking still of the Son, Therefore the Son, He, had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And you look up to verse 14 there. This is the children who share in flesh and blood. He had to be made like us. He had to be made like us a truly man, full humanity. Why? So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, he came down from heaven, took on our flesh and blood, so that he might conquer death by dying. So that he would destroy the power and curse of death by, curiously, by actually dying himself. Why? Because he died for us. And that's how he makes that big P word there, propitiation. That's how he satisfies the justice and wrath of God, that God would be propitious, loving, merciful to sinners, though we are. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's the word that the Son brought to us. Though a sinner and rebel you are, there's peace to be found with God through this coming Son. He came, he lived, he spoke, he taught, he died, he rose, he ascended, and now he declares, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, all you who need forgiveness. Come unto me, all you who need mercy, because I bought it forever. I came to speak and work and restore to you back to God. Listen to the Son. He is the voice that leads us back to God. So how do we do that? For some of you, you need to respond for the first time right now. Right in your heart, right in your seat, you need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for belief and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, if you're already in the church, if you're already part of God's people, What does this mean for us? How do we listen to the Son? How do we rivet and tie ourselves and lash ourselves to the Son? There there are scores of ways. You know what these are, but let me list a few. I'm going to list five really quick here. What do you do? How do you listen to this word? First, this is what the gathering of the church is all about. We are people that get together to submit and listen to Christ's word. So make church attendance a priority in your life this year. Okay, you're already here the end of last year? Great. Let's talk about how are you going to walk with Christ this next year? You need to hear His Word, be with His people, be under the preached Word. Second, get into His Word on your own. You know, this is, this is the classic read the Bible in a year sermon right here. There's more than one way to get in the Word, but that's a great scheduled way. Might you read the Bible through this year? Take in the whole scope of the Word of God. But the point is, be daily feeding yourself on the Son's Word. This is your life. Third, pray through His Word. A lot of times we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. Let the pattern of His Word guide your relationship with Him. That's how you can pray and talk to God. And furthermore, as you pray, every time you pray, remind yourself in your heart why you can pray, why He should dare hear you. Because I got one reason, it's the only one it is, because Jesus died for your sins. Praise Him for that.
Fourth, fellowship with others around the word. You don't have to go this alone. God has equipped brothers and sisters in the church to encourage you in the word. And sometimes the encouragement is you go and you sit together and you read. You might not even know what it is, but you pray and ask for help and you walk in application of it. But get with brothers and sisters, read the word together. Finally, how do we rivet ourselves to this word? You commit to tell others about the word. Commit this next year to tell others about how the son works through his word. And then you have the privilege of seeing the son work through his word in lives as his words come out of your mouth. And that's true when you go down to VCU or you go down to your neighbor and you speak to them about Christ. That's true when you're in the classroom and you're teaching. That's true when you gather around the kitchen table and you're going to say, let's open the Bible together. Let's look at Jesus. However you're going to take that step, that's going to drive you back where? You've got to be in the word. You've got to have life to give it. And you're going to find that life as you listen to this king in this word. For all of us and everyone, Jesus came to speak to you about God. No voice matters but his, so listen. God is speaking by his son, Jesus Christ. And may we, those who know him and have his word, help others hear him. We need to speak of him too. Let's pray for that. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, it is sure, it's a redeeming word that we find out that you are the glorious God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We give you praise, O Lord Jesus. May we, in the midst of all the festivities this week, may we have much rejoicing, much feasting, much fellowship, but may it be because of the hope that we have in you. That this is not a diversion, but this is fueling our hearts to rejoice all the more in the great gift you've given, salvation earned by the Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name alone we pray. Amen.